Okay, so we started with uh, some values, and we elaborated them, and we figured out what was wrong with existing institutions, and we came up with a workplace, and we, <coughs> having come up with the workplace with remuneration according to effort and sacrifice, and councils for decision-making and balanced job complexes, we now are at the point of having to do allocation. Um, I should tell you just before we begin, I don't mean this to be convincing. I can't do allocation in an hour and a half. But I can do, <coughs> in the way we've been doing, the broad character of it, some of the implications of it, some of the logic of it, and if it brings at all remotely interesting, then I have to pursue it. Um, the, the major issues of allocation, the way to start to think, well, first of all, what is allocation? I'm a little tired at this point. What is allocation? <clears throat> allocation is, you got these workplaces, and they're producing stuff. But obviously they need the inputs, they need people, and they need resources, and they need intermediate goods, and the stuff they produce has to wind up someplace in the hands of those who are going to use it. So the que that's to say consumers. So the question is, what determines how much of things happen, how much of things get produced, and where that how much winds up? Um, how is it that things are allocated? That's so the technical term for that is allocation. Uh, and we've already, in fact, talked about two allocation institutions at least a little bit, because we've talked about markets and we've talked about central planning. And in those two cases, we sort of tried to figure out a little bit about how those institutions determine how much of what arrives where, how things are relatively weighed, what their values are given to them, what price they have in some sense, or exchange rate and what kind of implications those two institutions have for the people who participate in them, and also for class structure. Remember, we talked about all that. So suppose we start over again with allocation, and we think for a minute in terms of we're a workplace, and we're going to try and think about the issue of how much of something we're going to produce. What do we have to know to think about that sensibly? So the first question we're going to ask is sort of about information. What kind of information do we have to have as workers to be responsible in thinking about how much stuff to produce? Need. Need among? Consumers. Consumers. Okay. So suppose we're a workplace and we're creating air conditioners and, and, um, and the need level is really, really high. Is that all we need to know? That people are saying we want air conditioners, we want air conditioners, we want air conditioners. What more do we need to know? Why? What to say? Well, we need to know what goes into making the air conditioners because we're trying to balance off what? Go away. <laughs> you can't, don't answer when you know the answer for sure. Go ahead. Especially that fast. What? Well, we're trying to weigh off why did you say that we needed to know what goes into it? Well, but you do. Intuitively, you needed to know what goes into it because you're, you're expending that. Suppose we use some rubber to make a tire. Can we also use some rubber to make a... What else do you use rubber for? Okay. So we have a rubber to make a tire, and I'm not sure that's right. Rubber to make rubbers. So uh, if you use it to make a tire, you can't use it over here, right? In other words, so that's, that's exactly what allocation is about. Allocation is precisely about you want to use stuff, including labor, 
including ability to do work, including talents, including resources, including intermediate goods, in such a way that you get benefit out of it, more benefit out of it than what you've given up by using it, right? So the reason why you have to know what goes into the air conditioners, and you have to know what, not just that people want air conditioners, but really how much they want it and how much benefit it will give, is so that you can make a responsible decision about whether or not it's worth it to use all this stuff to produce air conditioners for the people who are going to get the air conditioners. You have to, and you have to take into account, what are you really concerned with? Well, you're certainly not concerned with the fact that somebody's rich and has lots of money in their pocket and says they want an air conditioner and is willing to lay up a lot of money. That doesn't tell you how much they really want it as a person. That just tells you they're putting up a lot of money for it. If they're Bill Gates, they could be putting up a million dollars for an air conditioner and they don't even want it very much. So you see how that totally distorts everything. You can't get a clear image of how much people want it. But you want that. You want to know how much people want it and why. Because as a workplace, what do we want to say if we think that the effort that we have to put out to produce the air conditioners is not, you know, that the pleasure that they're going to bring is not commensurate to the effort that we're going to put out? What do we want to say then? We want to just produce them? We want to say no in some sense. What, what kind of decision-making input we have? What do we want? We want decision-making input in proportion as it affects us. So think about air conditioners. Well, it affects the consumer. It might have external effects. It affects us, the producers. It affects us a lot. It affects them also, but it affects us a lot. We want to say in this. Well, why do we want to say in it? Because we don't want to be producing something that's a waste of time. We don't want to be putting more effort and sacrifice out than is warranted by, by the benefits that accrue at the other end. So the information that we need as workers to be responsible economic actors in allocation is what the hell the implications of the thing is that we would be producing for the consumers, and also what the implications are for us, and for that matter, more broadly. And that is in the institutions that are giving us the steel or whatever it is that we're putting into the thing. All right, suppose we look at the problem from the opposite direction. Suppose you're a consumer. What do you have to know to be a responsible consumer? Hmm? Well, you got to know what's available to just be a, a remotely sensible consumer, because otherwise you can't make a choice. You okay. Know how the product was made. Why do you want to know how the product was made? Externality. Hmm. Externality. That's the second thing. Why do you want to know why the product was made? Because you're cons you have you're concerned not just with um, getting the right product, but with its the effects on other people. Uh huh. And actually, why might you be concerned with that not only out of solidarity, but from your own point of view? You want to make sure you're nothing poisoned. No, 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 no. Something more subtle, huh? What? Well, that's one reason you don't want it to be wasted, right? But there's another reason. Why are you concerned about the implications of your consumption choice for people's work? The workers who are making the thing that you consume. No. Well, you know they're going to be. Right? So what's the implication when you ask for something that has a high effort and sacrifice impact? It's going to be expensive. Yeah, but, who, but it affects you too, because there's balanced job complexes. So there's no point, you don't want to ask for something that, that affects job complexes adversely, right, without it being highly beneficial. into things that aren't worth the effort and sacrifice expended. Well, we'll have to see. But I don't want people to be slaving away to produce things that are of marginal interest to me, right? 
or other people for that matter. I want these. I want there to be a, a way off that's a true way off between full social costs and benefits, right? and that includes externalities as mentioned, which is right. And you want to get that in there too. So allocation is all about taking into account true social costs and benefits, all of them, right, and then making a judgment about how to apportion things so as to get desirable results. Uh, all right, so let me give you a general picture of uh, participatory economic allocation, and then we'll see where we go. So we said we had uh, councils in workplaces, and if you remember, the reason that we said we had councils in workplaces was because, well, first of all, we only have workers, and they're supposed to make the decisions, and they're supposed to make them with proportionate influence on the outcomes. And certain decisions, for instance, we have a little work team of the three of us, are, you know, who, how we're going to apportion tasks among us, what order we're going to do them in and stuff, overwhelmingly affects us. It might be that the overall re responsibility we have, due to the catalog or whatever it is, has been a general decision, but within that rubric we're making decisions that overwhelmingly affect us, so we have a little work team and we have a way that we make decisions in our work team. Then there could be a larger you know, sectional council or whatever, all the way up into a workplace council, a whole workplace. And, and what, what the point is here is that certain decisions are generally largely at some level, at some level of inclusion. And so you have some kind of structure that enables you to deal with that. The individual, a little team, a group, a division, a section, whatever, a whole workplace, a whole industry, and then the whole economy. All right, what about consumers? Is there anything comparable to that? Today? Or Actually, today or in the future society, whichever way you want to address it, whichever way you want to think about it. What? Yeah, that's, that's an element, and hopefully we don't need that. Um, yeah, but, but what else? Forget now, think of the future. Do you ever consume along with other people? When? No? Okay. Suppose, suppose we ask this question. Suppose right now there, what's the population of the U.S.? 300 million? Yeah. So how many families are? Let's say there's 100 million families in the United States. Or 100 million living units, forget families. 100 million living units. So suppose 50 million of them have washing machines. I have no idea. Suppose 50 million of them have washing machines. Does that make any sense? Why not? It's good to wash things. What's the problem? Huh? You don't need it all the time. So the problem here is, is that each one of those 50 million units has a washing machine and it's on for three hours a week, clothes washer. And so we have a 500 pounds of steel and this, that, and the other thing, all the human labor that went into it, all the stuff that went in it, and it's used three hours a week. Did we use that efficiently? Well, what's another possibility instead? We could have a what? Okay, we could have a wash we could have a bigger washing machine that's actually more sturdy and will last longer, even though it's used much more frequently, that serves more people. And so then we might have just as much washing function done, just as much benefit from washing, and yet have expended much less economically. But if we're doing that, who's gonna be purchasing in some sense? And we do that, even in a good economy, you you have a certain budget. We'll come back to that in a minute. But you have a certain budget. So who's going to be pur purchasing this kind of washing machine? The people who are using it. But that means you have this group of people. So you have a council. 
So you have consumer councils too. You have consumer individuals and consumer councils. And what levels do you have consumer councils at? Well, a living unit, a bunch of living units, right? Maybe a neighborhood, county, state, whatever it is. Because why? Because we consume things like, like parks, right? But more interestingly, let's say you have a taste for music and some other people have a taste. So you form some sort of broader living group arrangement, right? And as a result of that, and your consumer council, you decide that you want to spend some of your collective income on you know, a symphony room and recording equipment and all this other stuff. And so you, that's why you live in that particular living area. And somebody else lives in a living area where, I don't know, they're into astronomy, and so they have an observatory. Right? So now they're able to get things which give them fulfillment, etc., um, that's far greater than you would ordinarily expect, and it's because they collectively consume. And they give up some redundancies, right, which saves them a whole lot. Yeah. Like what? Well, but that's, remember what we said about remuneration being need? That's just need. People get that because they get that. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, what about, how, how do you, when getting from here to there, how do you get people to want to give up that convenience of having you know, the washing machine in their house as opposed to just you know, going down the street? Or well, it has to be that there's something better about, you know, it might not be down the street because we're living in new circumstances, but there's something better about it. We're describing a situation where you get the symphony room, the recording stuff, all sorts of other collective stuff, pools and everything else, and instead of being able to wash anytime you want, you know, have to make a schedule. Well, whatever, you still have to make a schedule, but so you, you lose having to make a schedule and you gain all that other stuff. No, I don't know. If people really don't want that kind of gain among other things like justice and equity and all the rest of it, then they can keep their friggin' washing machine and go on and live in this hellhole. But, but eventually you have to convince people of that and get people to understand it. Right now, there's no alternative. Nobody thinks there's any alternative. There's only one small thing. Right? But you see what I'm saying? You have to convince. Yeah, you have to get people to want a I new know, kind of way of working. It's such a big thing in our, hmm? it's such a big thing in our culture, having things that, you know. It's a big thing in our culture because the alternative is not having them. The alternative isn't having them collectively. And the alternative, and, and to the extent you have them collectively, you'd be having with them with people who are at odds with you all the time because we live in such a competitive society. So it's perfectly reasonable not to want. I don't want to have to, you know, share a washing machine with the neighbors. Well, most people would rather have their own than go to the laundromat, though. The fact that I, most people would rather have tons of stuff than less stuff, right? You can't do that. So there are constraints. So the reason that you want to have one for a bun, you can still have one. The person can still decide to have one. Nobody will. You can still have one. You've still got a budget. I didn't say anything about this being mandatory, right? You can put in and say, I want a washing machine. In fact, you can put in and say, I want a collective washing machine in my house. I want a washing machine that's big enough for 112 people in my house for me. <laughs> right? You could say that, and you could spend a big chunk of your income on it. Nobody will, right? Once there's these options, if you think about it, it's just nobody's going to do that. Well, it's because they will, they, they will, there's all sorts of stuff they won't get as a result. So they'll be able to walk past the room and look at this machine all the time, but they'll be losing real things. In our society, you don't lose anything. Right? Because, because it's the only things you can have is these individualist things. Um, all right, well, let's continue for a second. So what is the consumer? The consumer needs to know all these various things. And so now we have the consumer. All right, so we have workers' councils. And which means we have these various levels of workers who can make decisions. And we have consumer councils. So now how the hell do we get any kind of, you know, 
decision-making about what's to be made and where it's to go. Well, let's take it in the most simplistic way we can. What's the first thing that anybody could do? They could say what they want, or what they want to do. So let's imagine that happens. Let's imagine that the consumer's council is over here, and first the individual. So what, for, let me go back one step. What determines your budget? Budget meaning, like you, you, know, you go to Stop and Shop and Shop, you have a budget. Your budget. What determines how much stuff you can have, your income? How much you work and how hard the task is. How much you work and what? Yeah, you, the effort and sacrifice that you expend. And if we have balanced job complexes, basically how much you work and how hard you work um, will give you a little more or a little less than, than balanced job complex payment. Okay, what determines how much you get for that? How much the pie is, which is affected by technology and everything else. In other words, what the output is, because you're sharing in it, right? Okay, suppose I'm sitting down as an individual and I'm deciding um, how much I want. What am I simultaneously, implicitly deciding? In other words, so, so, suppose I say, I want this batch of stuff. Hmm? Well, if I say I want this batch of stuff, but I'm going to work at my balanced job complex an average amount of time, whatever the work week is, and I'm going to work an average amount, and this is what I want for it, you know, what have I said implicitly? First of all, what part of the whole pie is what I've asked for? equal to everybody, right? So what have I said? I've said the size of the whole pie, right? In other words, if I say that my total income is going to be a, this year I want a car, I want some peanuts, I want this, I want that, I want the other thing, right? So if we sum all that up, right, and if I'm working the average amount, then what's the total output for the whole economy? Well, it's 300 million times that. Is that clear? Right? That's what an average means. So implicitly, when I say what I want, I'm saying what the pie is. If I'm saying what the pie is, what am I saying about people's work? I'm saying how long they do it. I'm saying how long the workday is and how long the work week is. Right? In other words, I can't say, I can say it, but it won't work. It'll have to be fixed later. But if, if I can't say, well, I want this much stuff and I also want to work an hour and a half and that'll be the average. Because if we all work an hour and a half and that's the average, I don't get this much stuff. So there's a direct link, which there is, except now it's transparent and it's part of the calculation. There's a direct link between what we're saying we want and how much we're saying we're going to work. Those two things are intimately connected, obviously. Right? Okay, so, so when we say how much we want to, to, to consume, we're implicitly saying how much we want to work. Now, since there's a certain level of technology, the exact makeup of what we're saying is determining what? The balanced job complex. So we're simultaneously making decisions about our work life and our consumption life. On the other hand, when we act as a consumer, we have foremost in our minds our consumer life. We're thinking about how stuff makes us happy. And when we act as a worker, we have foremost in our minds our work life, and we're thinking about how that affects us. But we're all taking the rest into account, too. Okay, so suppose consumers, first of all, how, what does it mean to say that a consumer is going to say what they want for this year, let's say. How could anybody say what they want for this year? What would you need to know? You'd need to know what your budget is, and you'd need to know, probably, if you're going to do this in anything short of a long time, what you got last year. But suppose you know what you, suppose this has been working, so we're trying to understand it once it exists, right? Which is different from trying to understand how to get to it. Suppose it's working. So we know, I know what I got last year, right? 
And I can have some idea of whether or not we've had a lot of technological innovation. How do I have some idea of that? Well, first of all, all the information is available, but in addition, I must have decided upon it or been part of decide. So I can know that, you know, broadly speaking, we think productive capability has gone up by 2% or something, right? So right off, I know that the pie is probably 2% bigger if we work the same level as last year. Now, my, I might feel like we should work 5% less, right? or 10% more, or whatever I feel like. But once I make that decision, I can now look at my last year's consumption, I know what it meant to me last year, and I can start to juggle it a little bit. You know, I want to go up in some areas and down in other areas. So I've got a consumption proposal. So I've got a consumption, but, but what about my group? I have not only my individual consumption proposal, but now I'm in a living unit, I'm in some kind of a neighborhood thingy, right, which has the telescope and whatever, and I'm in a county. So I got to do those con collective levels also. So I got all this consumption crap coming along from here. Okay, over here, what does the workers, what does the workplace know? Well, it's pretty similar. Now I put on my other hat, my worker hat, and I'm in my workplace unit. And I know what we did last year again. And I also know what broadly is happening in the economy again. Now I'm fudging certain things, right? But the essence is here. So I know these things. So I'm going to make a proposal about what I want to do right, in the workplace. Now, actually, we want people to really make proposals about what they want, right? We don't want make people to cut themselves back to the quick, trying to be overly responsible. And per we want to express what we want. Why? Because we want to know what direction we want things to go in as you change over time. Okay, so what happens? We've got a proposal coming here from people acting as consumers. We've got a proposal coming from here from people acting as producers. What's going to be the relationship between these two proposals? Most likely in most cases, that is, m most, most items. Why will they be different, most likely, most often? Because I mean, are they going to be systematically different or just randomly a little bit off? No, systematically different. And which, in what way? Because each group um, has different um, priorities. No, no, I don't mean differences from consumer to consumer. I mean the sum total of all the consumer and the sum total of all the producer. Producers and consumers have different motivations. So what's the difference going to be? So you'd expect, right off the bat, in fact, you almost hope, or otherwise people aren't really expressing their true desires, right? That, that, I mean, we're not asking for people to say what they want in nirvana. We're asking for people to say what they want in the real world. But still, if you're trying to express what you'd like to be able to have happen, you expect demand to be more than supply, right? You want to work less, you want to consume more. So you expect across the board, with a few weird anomalies, that demand is outstripping supply. Okay, now what? Well, now what we said was that workers, to make reasonable decisions, should have information about all these various implications of choices. Consumers, to make reasonable decisions, should have all such implications. Suppose they do. Suppose we're, well, let's go back to the example. We're, what was the example? We're a, um, uh, an air conditioning company. I mean, we, you know, we make air conditioners. And, and the thing comes in. We just made our air conditioner proposal. We thought we'd been reasonably, you know, sensible. We, we upped it by 2% or something, right? And we thought, well, that's going to be cool. Everybody will be cool with that. And uh, we did it because we looked at the general direction of the economy and the general direction of need and everything else, and that's what we proposed. The thing comes in, and it's 30% up from last year. We went up 2% from last year. For some weird reason, the air conditioning demand in the country has gone up 30%. Now, that's, that's ridiculous. Right? Nothing changes that much. But let's say it does. It could, 
how, why could it change that much? Something has happened to the weather, right? And, and it's gone up dramatically because some places where you didn't need them before you need them. Or some, so that's one possibility. What's another possibility? Well, demand is just simply a representation of all these requests. So that's what's gone up. We're explaining why it went up. In other words, why is demand higher? There is a backlog of air conditioners, and one third of everybody's air conditioners broke. Did you just make that up? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so another reason why it could be is just oddly enough, 14 years ago they made an air conditioner that stunk, or two years ago they made an air so they all went bad, so that's another possibility. Okay, now what's the not so positive, po which is perfectly legitimate, right? It could be that there's a new, you know, Oprah went on TV and said, you know, it's studly to have two air conditioners, <laughs> or some such nonsense, and it caught on, right? And so now there's this fad, the air conditioner fad. And nobody stopped to think about the air conditioner fed, and, and so everybody's gone for air conditioners. Okay, so as producers, these things mean different things to us. If everybody is dying of heat prostration, that matters a lot. The fact that people are asking for air conditioners, it's not, we're not going to look at that and say, well, yeah, but we only want it to go up 2%, please, thank you. We're going to have to try and respond somehow. Not that we're going to have to make the extra 30% of air conditioners. There's going to have to be resources and people moved in here. But still, we're going to have to try and respond if that's the motivation. But what if the motivation was the fad? Or if it's the out-of-breaking thing, you know, it just depends. Now, what do we usually use to indicate these kinds of dynamics? Prices. Prices are supposed to represent a sort of a congealed representation of all that information we said was important. So a price is supposed to be just a number which captures the, the social costs and benefits. And in this case, social costs and benefits are very different if it's just a fad or if people are dying of heat prostation, right? But, what, but what's the truth about prices in a market system? They don't do that. They capture power, right? But that doesn't mean the price per se as just a convenience, a shorthand convenience to let you calculate and compare things, but then you can get behind them, right, is, is such a bad thing. Okay, so in a good system, we'd have these prices, indicative prices, we can call them, which would try and convey, but we'd also have the real qualitative information. So as the workplace with a dramatic change like this, we'd check it out, we'd discover that it's a combination of a heat wave and broken work things, and so we've got to up our proposal, which then means we've got to up our proposal for inputs, including people, to do the work. Okay, so what's happening here on the two sides, so suppose you're on the consumer side, and you happen to have thought, you know, you, you know, last year the number of people who asked for bicycles was whatever it was, and, you, and your collective unit asked for a certain number of bicycles, and you happen to want a new bicycle this year, so you're asking for one. Doesn't seem like any big deal at all. The damn thing comes back, and it turns out that bicycle production is going down 20%. Well, I don't know, some resources under an undersupply or something, right? What, I mean, in other words, there's some reason for this. There you go. Um, uh, whatever it is. So, so, so the, the thing has changed. So, so, so under those circumstances, what do you do about your request for a bicycle? Well, you don't necessarily throw it away. You're, you're trying to decide, do I want it enough to warrant getting it? That's, it's the same as what the workers are trying to decide. The consumers are now just like, you're trying to decide, they're giving me a cue back. This thing is no longer as easy as it was last year. It takes more. It uses up something that is, can go into something else. The price has increased, but now what the price has increased means is that it is, it is more socially beneficial stuff being used up in it, and maybe less benefit coming from it. Now I have to register whether I think there's more benefit or not, 
and I have to make a decision about that. So the way this process works, now is where it's going to be, you know, fudging a little bit so that we can get through this and also talk about implications, is we've got the councils and they make these proposals. The, the proposals, there has to be some way to communicate them well, so there has to be some mechanism by which all this information can percolate through the whole system to the producers and the consumers. You have to be able to get what you need, and you have to be able to get some summaries that you need and so on, so you need little structures for that. Suppose we have an institution that's an information dispersal handling institution. What do we know about the people who work in that place? No, but it's not in my economy. Not in my economy. What do we know about them? They have a balanced job complex. Can they get ahead in any way that isn't like anybody else getting ahead? No. Can they get income in any way that isn't like anybody else getting ahead? No. Does their position give them a situation which empowers them more than others? No way. We, we got, that's the way we got to set it up. All right. Now, if there's something about it that intrinsically prevents that, we got to find a way around it. Well, you got to trust me, if you look at it, it's nothing. I mean, it's, it, it turns out that you can do this stuff with algorithms and you don't even need people. You can have computers do it. Um, so, there's nothing, so you're not getting anything that gives you power. But if you were, then you'd have to balance it off and so on and so forth. Right? So you're right. That's the f you're saying what that's we should fear. You're saying what we should fear and exactly what the problem normally is. But that's precisely why we're constructing an economy in a new way, to, to not be able to have that problem. OK. So, um, so you have what's called an iterative planning process. An iterative is, iterative is like a round, right? So you know the uh, uh, tennis tournament has eight iterations or something. I suppose you could use the word. It's another technical economic word. So it just means you're going back and forth. And each time you go back and forth, you're sort of whittling your proposal, right? Like an artist or something. And you're whittling it in light of what? You're whittling it in light of feedback from the rest of the economy about its implications. That's whether you're a producer or a consumer. Right? Same thing. It's really quite reciprocal. And, and you're doing it in collective groups, councils, teams, et cetera, et cetera. So you're arriving at a result. And what happens when you arrive at a result? When, when you arrive at a result, you've basically arrived at what's going where, right? with the character that income is distributed according to effort and sa sacrifice. Now, how much influence have you had on decisions? Well, there's no way I'm going to convince you of this, although it's sort of intuitive. When you pushed on that bicycle, right, it was because you really wanted it. And if you didn't really want it, you didn't push as hard. And it turns out that your impact on prices, exchange rates, is really you're influencing those things, and thus you're influencing how things wind up allocated precisely in proportion to the depth of your feeling, which presumably, unless you're making a mistake in estimating your well-being, is a function of the impact on you and the effect on you. So it turns out you have a sort of an automatic mechanism which attributes to people in influence over the decisions, in this case, really, the relative valuation of everything and then what happens to everything that's in proportion as the, to the effect on them. Yeah. What difference does it make? They're, they're simply, that means they don't get affected highly by some work act operation. In other words, suppose you're sick and you're at home. Well, you're not making a decision about what goes on in the workplace because you're not in a workplace. You're making a decision about consumption. So you're not influencing so much that the work, there's no workplace for you to be influencing. You're not affected by one. Whereas you're not disenfranchised, right? It's no different from saying what happens to people who don't work in X but work in Y. Well, they're not making decisions about parts of X. 
they actually do influence X. So, so for instance, if X uses something that we also use, our decision about that influences X's ease of getting it. It's a little complicated now. But everything is interconnected. And it turns out it's perfect. In any case... Um, <laughs> Influence? I, I can't prove it. I mean, you know, here. But but the idea is, your what, what is the economy doing? The economy is deciding how much a bicycle is worth. Meaning, how much is all the work and the labor and everything that goes into it? What's going to be the implications? What else could we do with it if we didn't do the bicycle? Right. So, so you're you're relatively valuing everything, huh? Looking at cost and benefit. The true social costs and benefits, and the full ones. It's not, notice it's not to a single buyer and seller anymore. There's no single buyer and seller. There are these councils, right? And so, for instance, what's one of the things, think about pollution for a second. What's one of the things that collective consumption units want? Think about with respect to pollution. They want clear air, right? So, in other words, there's a consumer for clean air. The consumer for clean air isn't the individual buying the car. The consumer for clean air is everybody breathing the air, right? But that puts pressure on the pricing, that is to say, the way the workplace is able to function for the car. And so you have the car, the desire for the car as a transport, and the desire for clean air, you know, are not in exactly the same place. But that has to percolate through the system. And precisely it has to percolate in the sense that people get an influence as they're affected. You're right. saying like if something's considered to be damaging to the one to the other dynamic clean air, would that be more expensive then to buy it? You want what? If, if, if yeah. Happens, so that would be make it more expensive. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes it more expensive. So the only way the person can get it is by desiring it a whole lot more. Truly desiring a whole lot more. Not because they have a billion dollars and they just willing to flip some money into it, but they don't really right. But they really have to truly desire it in, and and it's with the same ju the same justice, you know, with the same level of of influence as anybody else. So now if we go back to the thing, the bicycle, your impact on it, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the process is a function of your hanging in there and continuing to demand it. This was the case where, right, you only hang in there and continue to demand it if you want it mm -hmm. a lot, right? So it's if it influences you a lot. When the whole thing is finished, you will have stayed in precisely up to the point. How badly you want it? Yeah, and, and it turns out it's, it's like a general system, right? And it turns out you have the appropriate amount of influence. And you don't have to be running around, you know. It does a lot of what think people think markets do, but it's not a market. It's not a market because nobody's competing with anybody else about anything. There's no, comp you know, nobody's competing in here. Nobody has any interest in selling stuff that people aren't going to use. So we're the bicycle manufacturer. We're not doing ads to try and convince people that they'll have a better sex life if they buy a bicycle. Why would we want to do that? That just means we have to produce more bicycles for reasons that have no benefit to people. That's insane. We have no interest in doing that. Our income is in no way connected to managing to do that. Right? We have no interest in doing that. Yeah. Well, how long? I mean, five-year-olds. Five-year-olds do not function, I suppose. Now, maybe somebody's going to differ with this, and I'm not going to argue about it, right? But I don't think five-year-olds function as adults. But whatever it is that we're talking about as an adult, the kid would then have to have an income. So they have a budget. So the kid can choose. 
you know, if they want to get a toy, fine. But the, if they want to put all their influence into getting a toy, that's cool. But now they have no ice cream, right, or anything else, just like anybody else. Hmm? Yes, it might be that their income is by virtue of being just like the income of somebody who is, you know, can't work because they're sick, right? But but they would part if they're going to participate themselves as compared to proxy, some adult, then they have to function. I assume. That's what I would think. It's not something I've spent a lot of time on, but that makes sense to me. Um, uh, yeah. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but go ahead. Well, that would be a disaster. So, in other words, it may well be that your that your income. Now, this is a this is these are questions you can imagine two different participatory economies that treat things differently. Right? You can imagine one that says children are very rewarding to people. Right? There's tremendous amount, especially in a good society, there's tremendous amount of satisfaction in everything that comes from children. It shouldn't be the case that if you have three or four children, you get four times the average income, because you know, why should you get more for doing something which makes you, you know, what you like? You see what I'm saying? So somebody could say, well, you know, you have to cover it with your income, like now. But another person could say, well, having children is part of society and everything else, and each child should get an average income for the age of whatever it is. It's two different approaches. That's not economically determined. That's politics. Well, that's not economically. That's not economics per se. And neither would some rule about this be. be. What's economically determined is that, insofar as you're working, the reward is for effort and sacrifice, right? And insofar as you are working, you're in a balanced job complex. And insofar as you're consuming, you do it through this participatory planning process, and likewise the other. But you might have other rules. You might have additional rules. That's sure. Yeah. Sorry. Why not? Why not? So there might be some more you, expensive Sure. Sure. But what you wouldn't have is you wouldn't have lots of companies, right, who are avoiding economies of scale to make insignificant differences in bicycles. You wouldn't have an automobile company which sells the same car at four different prices, right, and the only difference is not the motor or anything that costs anything, but some frills on the outside so that you can get more status, from, you know. You wouldn't have any of those things. And the reason you wouldn't have any of those things is because people, because it makes no sense. It makes sense in our society because people want the status that's associated with the commodity. Because that's where you get status. But in a good economy, that's not where you get status. And, and there's more than one reason why that's not where you get status. One reason why is because you can't get status there. Because you don't have enough income to have any difference between you and anybody else. Right? The difference is relatively small and it's just because you worked harder. There's no status, right? So the one reason is it's impossible. Another reason is because it's idiotic, right? Because we're, we're sensible people in a good economy, and we have sensible and we want things that benefit us, right? So it's very different. But good, you know, more expensive and less expensive, i.e., you know, involving more stuff and it works better, more durable, whatever. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so a capitalist might say, um, well, under your system, there will be there won't be any innovation because if the supply is based only on the demand um, for things that people already think they need. Why? Suppose we have a workplace. Suppose we have an um, air conditioner workplace. Right? Why shouldn't we have a part of our air conditioner workplace that is um, focused on innovations? 
Do we have any interest in doing that? What's the two interests that we have in doing that? It's three, actually. One interest is making better air conditioners, and we want everybody else to do that, too. And why do we want to do that? Well, because we don't want to spend all day long wasting our time. We want to meet people's needs. That's what everybody in the society does. We don't want to spend air and, right? We're not doing alienated labor anymore. We're doing labor that has meaning. So one reason is because we want the air conditioners to be better. Another reason is because we want our jobs to be easier. So we might, not, so we might be innovating the work procedures that we use. And another is that we want more productivity so that we get more pie per effort so that we have more to consume. There's no impediment innovation. to innovation. Now, there's a different criticism that comes along that we'll get in a minute. Well, people try and come up with criticisms. That what about something that hasn't been invented yet? Well, the in same. medical science, whatever. Why should there's research facilities there? You know, that's part of... We haven't all of a sudden lost our... There's something that you're going to find here someplace, right? But, but, but you're not getting it yet exactly. Um, just to make it palatable, suppose you went back 5,000 years ago and you looked in Egypt. You'd find pharaonic society, whatever you want to call it, the old Egyptian society with the pharaohs and all the rest of it. And it was the most advanced thing on the planet. But if you went back 4,000 years later, right, you'd find the same society, same living, same buildings. In other words, just, it's just static. Same language, same religion, same culture, same myths, same clothes, same everything. 4,000 years and basically no change. Now that's hard to get a grasp on, right? But, but it really is amazing in human history. Or alternatively, what's amazing is a period of time in which there is innovation and change. So if you look at 1900 to now, you know, the average lifespan in the United States goes from something like 43 to 75. Well, that's change. I mean, that's serious change and good thing. So you can have a society that's basically static, and you can have a society that's very dynamic, and that's what you're trying to get at. It's perfectly reasonable. We have removed one thing that makes society like ours dynamic. We've removed accumulate, accumulate. That's Moses and the prophets. We have removed the profit motive, the desire of the capitalist to continually find new ways to get profit, which leads to various kinds of innovation. What if we put in its place as a motivation? Well, the desire for, you know, to, to fulfill curiosity, the desire to gain status from having accomplished great things as a scientist or an investigator, and the desire to produce better and to produce less onerously so our lives are better. Right? Now, it's a different set of, of motivations. Uh, I don't think it's going to work any less well if it does work a little less well in the sense of being a little less pushy, it doesn't bother me. There is, a, there is one place where it will make a big difference in a, in, a, in a way that diminishes this kind of impetus, and that's the length of the workday. Why is it going to make a big difference there? People want to work less. People want? Well, no. We can set the workday at any length we want. What will we set it at? We'll probably set it much lower in this kind of system. We'll come to a minute to what it might be. But we'll probably set it much lower. Why? Because we value leisure. But in a market system, it doesn't matter that you value leisure. The market system compels, by competition, longer and longer work hours, even against the will of even, even elites, much less the rest of us. Right? But this system, it's just a straight-out choice. I said, when you're doing the consumption choice, you're basically making a choice about work. So, hey. right. So, as every reason to think, so one of, if, if you think in terms of the, um, you know, how have people criticized this thing? 
uh, uh, if they look at it at all. Um, left economists who have criticized it uh, have one of the things they've criticized is they've said it doesn't grow. It's a no growth economy. They think it's not going to grow as much. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Would you not have then like people investing in real estate and all that kind of stuff? You can't invest. What does it, what does it mean to invest in real you estate? You own your own house. Oh, sure. But just not anything else. No, because you, you're not. When you say home? invest in real estate, you mean like buy a strip of land and have it be capital. There is no capital. Okay, so like all the apartment complexes or something would be owned by the government? There's no such thing as being owned, nothing is owned by anybody privately okay. like that. Um, now, you can think it's owned by who occupies it in some sense, but ownership doesn't convey anything. It conveys something is that it's yours. I mean, a dwelling place will be owned by the people who dwell there. Okay. Right? But and how how they have gotten it? They'll have bought it. I mean, that is to say, it will have been part of their share of the pie, of the social product. And why is it part of their share? Well, because they earn an income by virtue of what they do. Well, how do you make it like so? They're kind of starting at, at the same line because other because like if you convert it over to someone like this, obviously. Well, that's again transition. People will be in big houses. Yeah. People will be in little houses. That's a transitional problem, right? So first thing you got to do is get a model of what the hell you you want. Then you have two problems still. How do you go from where we are to everybody wanting it, or a lot enough people wanting it that you can get it? And then also you have the problem of you start off in very unequal situations in many respects, and you have to deal with that. Well, a lot of ways. But if you're asking, I don't know what would happen to this house, but you know the big houses that are out there. If you walk out there, they're going to become daycare centers or something. You know, nobody's going to own them and live in them two weeks out of the year. So that just changes. Could you right? trade no, because you, you it, well, I don't know what, let's take the big, could the person who owns the big house, tra well, look, again, different economies might function differently. This is transition. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but so a particular country might decide, well, we're not going to, why bother, right, with the big hassle? Why, we've got so many things to do, so much stuff to rebuild, so many things to deal with. Why the fuck should we mess with these people? Let them keep their damn house. But the inheritance tax is 100%, that's for sure. The kids aren't going to get it, right? And let them just die off, you know, and we won't have the hassle. Some country might decide that. The next country decides, no, sorry. We're not going to have people living in, you know, 17, these gigantic houses. And this might qualify too, I don't know. But in any case, right? And then, but this is tiny, you know, this is not a big... Um, Okay, but that but the bigger questions are the more you know first you have to have a system that works and that's valuable and desirable, and then of course the next now after you've done that important thing now the new thing that becomes important is the kind of questions you're raising. Um, uh, so go back to what they complain about. So they complain about no growth. So what are they basically saying? They're basically saying that there isn't this impetus, this bias toward working longer and longer. This, mind you, is a criticism, right? This is, this is people on the left criticizing the economy. So we answer, yes, you're correct, there is not that bias, it's just that we don't see that as a criticism. You know, we see that it makes sense that people should choose how long they work and weigh it off against what they want. Uh, the next criticism is that, um, the next criticism is that in this society we, ha we will have, instead of the dictatorship of um, the coordinator class or the capitalist class, Right? We will have the dictatorship of the sociable. Does anybody have any idea what the hell this person is saying? This is a very good leftist, leftist economist. Doesn't matter, but very, very good. What, 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 what is this person saying? Well, they don't have to. But so, so why? 
What? Hmm. So the person is saying that some people are going to be more disposed and inclined. Now notice, we have balanced job complexes. We have sensible schooling. We've done everything we can institutionally to try and prepare everybody to be able to be a participant. So this person is actually not saying that some people have different capacities. They're saying that they have different dispositions. Right? So some people like it and some people don't like it. So some people will participate more and some people will participate less. And the people who participate more, by virtue of that, will have more impact or more influence. The first problem is, is that it's, in many respects, wrong. Um, because it isn't the case that everything is decided in gigantic meetings where you have to argue for things. What did we say that the consumer does? Sits down and figures out what they want to consume. Right? You don't have to argue with people about whether or not you want peanuts or almonds or whatever it is that you want. You just decide what you want. So you don't. Ha so it isn't that kind of, you know, all those kinds of choices. You don't have to argue for them. Uh, but in a workplace, in a workplace council or something, you know, people are discussing the issues and before they vote on whatever the mechanism is that they vote. And obviously, if somebody really likes to go to those meetings and talk, they're going to have more impact than somebody who doesn't. And our response to this is basically. You know, okay, better the dictatorship of the sociable than the dictatorship of the thug or the capitalist or the coordinator. Uh, it doesn't bother us very much. Um, uh, I, I, don't, I, you know, I, but that's what people are coming up with. Right? That's supposed to. Well, what's the alternative? The alternative is, in other words, what alternative is there? You see what I'm saying? All they're saying really is that decisions are being made and they're being made democratically, and that somebody you know, can choose to participate more. There's no obstacle to participate. But there's a fuzzy line between being made democratically and being made um, in a self-regarding or self-interested way. Well, no, no, but notice what else we've done in this system. You can't make this, there's no way to propel yourself, right, that isn't propelling others. So that's, you know, we've got like double guards on almost everything. I mean, it, right? It, it, it's both the motivations there and the structure. It's very hard to do anything that lets you. Suppose you want to steal. Can you steal? Sure you can. Sure you can. But what's the problem? Yeah, I mean, ha suppose you steal. All right, so you're good at it. So you start stealing, right? Now, now what's the problem? The problem is that unlike our society, where there's tremendous disparities in income, so if you steal a whole lot, it just means you earned a whole lot. What happens in this society? There's no, you can't have earned a whole lot, right? You can't have earned way more than everybody else. You could only earn somewhat more than everybody else because you worked a little harder. So you can't steal a whole lot and enjoy it publicly, right? Now you could, if you can manage to get into the, the, the museum, and steal the fancy painting and hide it in your basement and enjoy it, you know, like in the movies or something. Okay, fine, that's possible. You know, but you you see how it it diminishes the the range of of uh, of options. Same thing for well, the next well, anyway, yeah. I was going to say with the whole thing about the dictatorship as a sociable, wouldn't it? I mean, isn't that a pretty valid criticism of that whole concept? That obviously, if we have a society where everyone's empowered, people are going to recognize that certain people have better for arguing and have different personalities and people aren't going to necessarily let that sway them in their overall... Yeah, it's, the person isn't actually saying... See, the person isn't actually saying that at the meeting, good ideas and good arguments will prevail because good ideas and good arguments prevail only because everybody votes for them. 
right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Or at least I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, in other words, if we have meetings in our workplace and, and you know, four straight decisions turn out to be something that you thought up, right? It's still the case that we influence the outcome. You just were an expert who provided some information or a good thinker who thought something through clearly. Right? But we didn't, we, weren't, we didn't decide on that because you bludgeoned us or because you had a monopoly on the thinking or a monopoly on any of the information. We decided on it. There's nothing wrong with that. What this person is literally saying is that we won't stay at the meeting and vote. Right? See, they're literally saying that, that the workplace meeting won't be all of us. We'll stay home, some of us, a lot of us. And the sociable will come and meet and decide. And the non-sociable right, won't want to be in the room and meet and vote, which is why I was saying over here for consumption, they're wrong because you don't go to a meeting to consume. Right? I think they're wrong anyway because it's ridiculous. But if it, if it is the case that some people decide that they'd rather stay home, and sometimes everybody will rather stay home, right? You don't want to be involved in every decision. Why? Because it's not very important to you or whatever. That's okay. Right? You don't have to go to every meeting and be involved in every decision, even in the workplace. But the point is, if it systematically occurs that there's a subset of people who are antisocial and stay away for that reason, it's true that they will thereby forfeit some of their influence. And so she's saying the sociable will have more influence than the unsociable. So, yes, it could happen. And no, I don't find it very compelling that that's a serious problem. I mean, maybe somebody else does, in which case you can try and figure out how you're going to coerce the people to be there. Yeah. Um, what do you think the overhead is in the iterative process? You know, they like to talk about prices just self-adjusting, and so it's very efficient. As, as is evidenced by gluts, strikes, breakdowns that reduce, you know, so, so on the first hand, that's wrong. In the second place, what you have to do to answer that question is you have to begin to do what we can't do here and look at it in a little more detail and see how much information there is that flows and, and how much you have to do, how long the process takes, how many meetings it involves. That's another criticism, too many meetings, right? And, our, and, and you have to do all that. And it's perfectly legitimate to ask if you have to do all that. And if it turns out that the friction, the amount of energy and effort that goes into the planning is so great that it takes away from all the productivity, then you have a problem on your hands, which is exactly everybody's intuition. Justice, equity, self-management costs too much, right? And, and costs too much in time and in effort and in all the rest of that, and it will leave us all paupers. So we'll sacrifice all that in order to have the stuff. And that's wrong. We have to make a case for why that's wrong. And there's many reasons why it's wrong. I mean, among them, for instance, well, let's look at the length of the workday. Suppose we take the current U.S. economy and we get rid of military production and we get rid of all advertising that isn't true information, right? We get all redundant goods, right? Duplication of effort. You, you know, you don't have Crest and this and that and the other thing where you're trying to distinguish between them with advertising and so you don't get economy. You get rid of all of it. So uh, uh, we get rid of all silliness, for instance, uh, you know, eight million hotel rooms, at which at any given time, four and a half million of them are empty. Right? You get rid of everybody having a washing machine or everybody having a, a car and you have sensible transport and sensible stuff like that. Now you have all this productive capacity. Right? In other words, let's say the, out, the pie was this big. Right? Well, we've now gotten rid of a lot of it. We can build it back up again by putting in good things instead of all those, that other shit if we keep working the same level. Right? But if we, don't, if we just keep the good stuff and got rid of all the other stuff, the pie goes down, the work time goes down. 
right? So how much would it go down? I don't know. Uh, you know, so you don't you don't have all the results of the pollution. So you don't have all the productivity that goes into cleaning up the mess. You don't have all the cancer and all the rest of it. Doesn't mean you have none cancer, but you have less. So you don't have all the production that goes into that. You don't. So you get rid of what happens to the workday length. I don't know. Fifty uh, percent. You know, it's a plausible estimate. That's before you've decided that you want to have more leisure. Right? You haven't even decided you want to have more leisure yet. Hmm? No, your unemployment hasn't gone anywhere. There's no such thing as unemployment. Well, they're doing other work. They're doing socially useful work. Right? So, in other words, the things that we are producing, whatever it is that the pie is left, in other words, the nice pieces of pie. We had all this pie that was poison. We got rid of that. So we got the good pie left. Now we can do two things with the labor that we have freed, as well as the resources that we have freed, and the energy that we have freed. We can either produce a whole lot more, right? Or we can not produce, or we can be investing, thinking about ways to even be more productive and reduce the workday length more, right? Or we can just not do it. We can have it as leisure. But it won't be that the people who were producing the missile get all the leisure, right? That rather they have to work in other things. We reapportion and so on and so forth. So for instance, we take the military base that's on Cape Cod and it makes affordable housing. I mean, we could even demand that now, and that would be a sensible good demand, and it could be done in a way that was non-reformist reform that pointed in the direction of sensible things like this. Right? But the point is, we all share in the work, or at least everybody who can work, so there's no unemployment. And there's no need for unemployment. What's the need for unemployment in a market economy? Unemployment disciplines workers. It creates a context in which workers have less power and are smashed down. We don't need unemployment. Right? It, has no, it has no positive, it has no purpose. It's just bad. Except for maybe frictional unemployment, you're changing a job. That's no problem. You know, because you want to change a job. So yeah. in this system, say there was some uh, verbal virus that caused 20% um, of the people to be handicapped. That would mean that yeah. collectively all the, the people who weren't handicapped would have to decide because our work week was 20 hours a week now to accommodate new people who work 25 hours a week. Well, I mean, I, I would like to think that's what would happen. I suppose we could be malignant and instead drop them into the ocean. You know I mean, you, the fact that we have a paracon doesn't mean, doesn't solve everything, right? I, I like to think that's what would happen, that we would all say, well, you know, we have to take care of our own. So sure. But, but um, So, so the, the, the no-growth argument is an argument about this stuff. It's an argument about the length of the workday going down. And they're right the length of the workday would go down. The length of the workday would first go down because we'd get rid of the unnecessary production. It would second go down because maybe we would shorten it. But see, I, don't, I actually think this is wrong also. I mean, I suspect that with an unalienated labor, with desirable labor that's socially beneficial, right, it wouldn't go all that low. I suspect, you know, so maybe it would go to 25 hours. But 25 hours of non-profit-driven you know, labor from everybody, no unemployment and all the rest of it, taught, trained, made their most productive selves, right? I suspect is going to create a bigger pie, right? A much bigger pie of good stuff. Not the, that the whole pie is bigger, but that the quality of the pie is better because, this, you understand what I'm saying? So I'm not worried about this criticism either. 
even if any of these criticisms were right, I wouldn't be particularly worried about them because the values that we're getting, like justice and equity and self-management, seem to me to be outweighing the, the things that people are worried about. But they turn out not to be real problems in any event. Yeah. How much choice would people have? Like, as far as, like you said, you could get rid of the redundant stuff, but to what degree do you get rid of it so like, people can, I mean, is By, one manufacturer going to mix everything? No. By redundant stuff, I don't mean that, you know, this shirt and that shirt are redundant. I, I, what I mean is um, that you know when you when a when a when a, uh, an automobile production company takes the same car, mm -hmm. right, and and puts a slightly different shell on it, the same motor, the same drive shaft, everything else, and puts a slightly different shell on it in order to capture monopoly pri in order to in order to appeal to different sectors that have different incomes, mm -hmm. selling it on the basis of status, right? That doesn't make any sense. So that kind of stuff disappears. It doesn't mean that you don't have, you know, um, chairs that are different from each other, both in appearance and in quality, mm -hmm. and likewise other things. It doesn't mean that, right? But it does mean that you don't have the same thing being manufactured by four different companies competing, thus irrationally misallocating resources, et cetera, et cetera. You don't do that. That's what's missing. And of course, all the promotion. I mean, you'd just be astounded at how much of the budget of a company is not the production of the product, but the promotion and the packaging and so on. Um, so you get rid of all that, that's a big deal. Let me see if I'm missing anything. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, I'm wondering what... Oh, I know what I'm missing. The system, suppose that everybody works 25 hours a week, and it turns out that um, increased labor, that actually what people want is that they have enough time to have more children. Yeah. So decreasing the amount of everybody's working well, it's very unlikely, statistically yeah. and, and, and sociologically, but let's say it's the case. Okay, so let's say it's the case that what happens is, is we, we want to, what is it? We, we were working at 25 hours, and we decide we want more kids. Well, if, we if, if society's really having a lot more kids, the amount of stuff that adults are getting is going down, because the pie is only so big and a lot of it's going to the kids. They might decide to upload hours, or they might not. It's a social decision. In other words, a participatory economic model doesn't tell you what the decisions are going to be. It tells you the decisions are going to be just, fair, and self-managed. Right? You have to, you know, you can guess what the decisions are going to be, and I can guess and probably guess pretty much the same thing. But you only know that when it happens. Right? I mean, saying you want democracy isn't saying you want a specific outcome. Right? The outcomes that we're demanding of this type of economy is balanced job complexes, remuneration for effort and sacrifice, council democracy, and participatory planning. After that, we'll see, right? Um, but, but there are some things that you, know, that you can certainly predict. There's one sector of people, and there are usually representatives of that sector in the class, who by this time is about to have apoplexy. But I don't see it happening in this class, yeah? Um, you said earlier that- It's a uh, clue, if anybody can figure out who it is. Was, uh, uh, would be a part of the Economy, but it seems that everything that we're talking about um, is moving towards less and less diversity, more, more homogeneity. I don't think so. The, in, in the sense that we get rid of three classes and have one, that's true, right? Because now we, have, we just have workers and we don't have coordinators, we don't have capitalists. So we've sort of gotten rid of two categories. On the other hand, we have no homogenizing effects on workers. Workers just manifest their preference and their desires. There's no compulsion you know, to, to oppose another class and to define oneself in opposition and to stay away from their stuff and I don't see that. I don't, again, the redundancy thing is not a diversity thing. It's 
redundancy. We're talking about simply waste, right? We're talking about not use, we're talking about, it's the same as the washing machine. The washing machine was a redundancy example, right? We didn't get rid of the washing machine to get rid of choice or diversity. We got rid of it to get the symphony and the telescope, right? In other words, we made the choice. Well, hell, I, I want to be able to wash my clothes, but if I wash it in a more collective way, right, I save a lot of income, and so do all my neighbors, and we can then use that income, let's say we're into sports, to have a gymnasium for our neighborhood with all the great equipment that we want. So that's the choice that we're making. Now, does that make it less diverse or more diverse? Well, that community is pretty sports-oriented, but of course there's all sorts of communities, and they all have different orientations. So there's plenty of diversity, and certainly sports plus laundry is more diverse than just laundry. Right? See what I mean? So I don't, I don't think so. Hmm? How do you what? You mean to seek it? Oh, once you have it, it's easy. I mean, once it exists, it's the only thing you can do. In other words, once it exists, once this type of economy exists, there is no, there's no interest in doing anything else. In other words, you can't get ahead except by being participatory economic human being. So we presuppose the values when we started up building the model for the economy. How do you get there is a different question. Well, that's a yeah. different question. And, and we've talked about that. So, you know, you make dem we make demands that they, you know, take the uh, Air Force Base and build low-income housing. We make demands in a workplace that information be circulated to the unions. We start to set up councils. Right? which begin to investigate the nature of the workplace. We start to set up consumer... Suppose you live in a building. So you set up a consumer council, and the first... I mean, a little thing that you do is you notice that the old people are on the top floors and the young people are on the low floors and the staircases. Right? So you just remove everybody. You know, fuck the real estate, the, real, the owner. You just move everybody sensibly. Right? That's not a small thing. I mean, let stuff like that start happening, and we're on the road. Right? Because now what do you have? You have people collectively making decisions over their lives, and this is a decision that you could make that probably is no obstacle. Right? I mean, it's just, the only obstacle is the, is the stored up individualism, but the payoff is high, especially for the elderly people. Right? And then you begin to create a collective consumption unit. You could even do that now. So you create a consumer council and the group, people have done things like this. You create a consumer council and now there's benefits. You do collective shopping. You know. But you, but you do it inside the rubric of a goal. You're not just doing it to get a little advantage in the current system. There's a whole philosophy around it. So there's something, you're doing something that is going somewhere, which gives it a whole different tenor. And then many, many other demands and processes and building councils and building movements and so on and so forth. Yeah. Besides which, with the regular system that we have now, you know, the, the crazy system we have now, it's doomed to failure. And the way that it's going, you know, you know, we have lots of different types of toothpaste, but if the system of competition continues, one toothpaste company buys out the next toothpaste company, and ultimately what you get, get with this system, carried to its extreme, is a lack of choices. And I think, you know, then that transition becomes easier for people to see as this system becomes more extreme. Well, as people become, as you fight and you learn through the fighting what the situation is. Um, yeah. About the allocation process. Yeah. If say you think up a good that would be great to have, and I don't mean inside your workplace. I don't mean innovation. I mean say I think up you know, a new product. A, yeah, a new product. Okay. How how would the economy respond to that? So how does it happen now? 
Well, what do you have to do if you're an entrepreneur and you've got an idea for a new product? Market test. What do you have to do? Well, you have to raise the capital. So who do you go to? I suppose the iteration facilitation. No, no, in the, in the current economy. A bank. Yeah, in the current economy, you've got to go to a bank. So if you want to be an entrepreneur, right, and bring into existence some new product, you, you have to convince who? In our economy, you have to convince the bank. And what do you have to convince them of? so that they will get a return on their investment. Okay, now what about in the participatory economy? Who do you have to go to? Yeah, you have to go to maybe an industry council that's in the mo closest related industry. And you're basically saying, we want to set up a workplace. Right? We want to enter into, as a workers' council, right, the process. And what do you have to convince? You have to convince the economy to give you the stuff that you need to function. It isn't automatic by any means. But notice what you have to convince now. Now, instead of having to convince the capitalist class that they'll get rich off you, you have to convince your fellow workers and consumers that it's a desirable product that will benefit people sufficiently to warrant the resources. And if it's not, you don't want to do it. No. Yeah. So everybody's got the same. It's not that people won't disagree, but the interesting thing about this economy is that people always have the same aim in some sense although they can disagree about it. So if you go back, remember to the example of the uh, investment in the coal mine or in the work or in the uh, in the uh, the publishing house? Remember that example? Now ordinarily what you have is imposed interest, right? Now what we have is a discussion about which one has the most the biggest effect, right? It's not that one place has an interest in one and one place has an interest in the other. Both in some sense have an interest in the one that has the largest effect on quality of life. That's generally the case. You might disagree about it, and you might disagree about it for irrational, irrational, you know, we're not all of a sudden saints, but at least the whole tone and the whole focus and the whole set of incentives has dramatically changed. What's the sector of people who's going bazonkers? And particularly about balanced job complexes, but in general. Yes, but what particular set of people who might be in here who certainly wouldn't represent themselves as the coordinator class? Artists. Bingo. It's always the case that when I present this stuff that the artists have a problem. Now why does the artist, is there an artist in the room who's having a problem? Let's not keep it hidden. Wait, well, do we have an artist? Do we have somebody who sees themselves as a painter or as a, a musical artist or whatever, performing artist, who feels like there's something wrong here? You don't feel it. Okay. Good. But what the, but the artist says is something, I'll be the artist, okay? So, so and that's a joke. All right, so I'll be the artist. And, and, and what I'm going to say is, wait a minute, they don't, they don't get it, right? I get it, but they don't get it, right? And so if I've got to appeal to society that what I'm doing is of worth, what happens if what I'm doing society just doesn't get yet, right? So now, is this a problem or not? And is it unique to artists or not? The artists are the only one that will bring this up. But, but is it unique to artists as an industry? No, the inventor over here, invent some new thing. Okay, so it would be the inventor also, but what else? Writer. Just the Writer. you want to do something in your own workplace. Anything. Suppose we're bicycles, right? And, and we're thinking about changing the bicycle around so that the proportionate and the layout and so on and so forth will not cause as much back pain or something to elderly people who ride bikes. Well, 
before we do it, we don't know whether or not it works. All right. Suppose we spend the, the workplace decides to investigate this, to explore it, to put some research in it, to make a model bicycle to see where it goes. Suppose it manages to convince the world at large to continue to provide it the things that it needs to do its work, right? And it spends two years doing it, and then it throws it out because it doesn't work. Should the people who have been doing that that whole time have been remunerated or not? They should have been remunerated. I mean, it didn't work, but that doesn't mean it wasn't socially reasonable and, and sensible thing. Okay, now suppose somebody says, I am an artist, I want to do X, and X is something that the artist can't convince an artist's workplace or the, or the community is worth doing. Should they be remunerated for it? Think twice here. Yes? See, I don't think so. That is, suppose I say it, right? Well, I want to play harmonica, right? And I want to be remunerated for that. Now, the noise that comes out of my mouth when I play harmonica is going to be of appeal to nobody. And there is no, and the artist's workplace, hmm? What? No, because I'm not good. That's the point. What if you want to make right. farting sounds with your arm all day? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the extreme version of it, but I, being so cultured, would never say a thing like that. So, so I'm doing the harmonica, right? So I'm making this harmonica noise, noise and, but I'm doing it because I'm a music. If I'm a musician, where do I work? Uh -uh. I work in the music industry. What? I work in the music industry. So I work in the music workplace, right? I work along with other musicians because those are my fellow workers. Now, I also have a balanced job complex. This drives them batty also. But I have a balanced job complex, so Mozart has to sweep. But then again, we get more Mozarts, right? And sweeping is so bad for, you know, the, the few instances we have of this, of course, is Einstein. Everybody brings up Einstein, and actually, Einstein, when he did all the stuff that he did, does anybody know what he was? Yeah, he was a clerk in a patent office when he was doing it all. He wasn't given all this, he, he didn't have all this freedom time. He was in a shit job all day long. And he used to describe it as, as if it hadn't been for that, he wouldn't have been able to do it. If he had been in a university, you know, so it's totally nonsense. But in any event, the point is, you have to be doing socially beneficial work. One of the key things about allocation is this. You're rewarding people for their effort and sacrifice. You're not rewarding them for the quality of the output. But you want quality output. So the units of production are, have to be, you have to elicit from them and in a sense charge them for so when we go and we we're new entrepreneurs and we're saying we, we're going to do this new product, people are looking at, is this product beneficial enough to warrant everything that's going in it, including the human labor? But the remuneration is for effort and sacrifice. Now, so that means that the, the music workplace, I can't do all the details, but the music workplace has to, be, has to be doing good stuff that society warrants it to be a workplace. Now, the one, now at this point, the musician gets all nervous because they think, uh-oh, right? Society is going to... Now, who is it that has to warrant it to be a workplace now? Same question as we asked five minutes ago. Huh? The bankers. Ultimately, right? It's the bankers. In other words, it's the investors. It's the people who put up the money. It's the publishing companies. Those are the ones who determine. So the artists, in their tremendous wisdom, are, are missing that the transmission, the transition here, right, is from being beholden to the ruling class's estimate of what is art, to being beholden to what? The population's estimate and your fellow artist's estimate. Just like the bicycle worker. The bicycle shop has to appeal to the whole society, but inside the bicycle shop, the person who's proposing some sort of change in the bicycle shop has to appeal to the bicycle workers. 
right? And it's the same idea. And there really isn't any difference. They'll do it. Then they should do. They, the, the society should have should allow. <coughs> they can do it in their house, but it shouldn't pay them for it. Why should it pay them for it? As as their income, they're not providing anything. Right? Because if you do well, but if you do, then what happens if everybody says they want to do it? Then you have all all you have is farting noises and no food, so you can't do that. So, so, so you're going to say, well, there'll have to be a mechanism by which we get all the food and all the other stuff. Well, no, well why I, shouldn't I, they I, be I, part I, of it? Like a subsistence level income, and somebody would make a choice. Like, it is really important to me that I make farting noises. All right. Day, well, then, that's fine. So then, so then they have two things they can do. They can go to the art thing, and they can try and convince everybody that this is part of the economy. And when everybody laughs, assuming that's what happens, right, then they can decide, well, I'm just going to do it on my own, right? Now they have to decide how much they want to eat while they're doing it, and how many hours they're going to work. Because society isn't going to, that's not the same as they're sick, presumably it's not the same as they're sick, I mean, if they're mentally deranged, okay, but, but if, right? But, but the point is, now could it make, could there be a mistake? Maybe the farter is, is the next decade's Mozart, and so we could make a mistake. Now that's what the farter is trying to... Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Right, right. And and now under capitalism, what's going to determine whether or not we have it? It's whether or not the farter convinces the investor. Same thing in the old days, right? They, they have to convince the rich patrons. And what nowadays, what's going to determine it? Whether or not the farter convinces the self-managing, participatory, educated, creative populace and the other artists. Well, I'll take that. You know, I prefer that. Not to mention getting justice along with it, right? And equity and everything else. And, and there doesn't seem to me to be any other alternative. And the farter is no different than the person who has an innovative idea about anything else, right? The minute you let somebody say, oh, but I'm so cool, so I don't have to have a balanced job complex, then, then you have to let everybody do that, and it's based on some kind of, and now you've got a class structure. So, so your choice isn't, you know, one person, Einstein, not having to sweep. Your choice is either people have balanced job <laughs> complexes or they're not going to have them, right? And some people are going to monopolize, right? I see a problem with this uh, generation. Uh-oh. I forgot to sacrifice, okay? I saw it and someone said, well, they invented a new whatever. Mm-hmm. You can't always determine how much effort you sacrifice. Okay, so let's, see, let's ask how we do that. Um, suppose we have, I, we did this before, but let's, there's no reason not to do it again. You can't always determine accurately is correct about anything in a social realm. So I don't want to make believe that we get perfect answers. That's not the point, right? But suppose we have a workplace. How does innovations happen? Well, some people are doing are working on creating innovations, right? Now somebody might be off in the patent office and dream something up. Well, that's cool. It didn't, you know, the fact that Einstein didn't get paid for dreaming it up won't stop him from making it public because what people do. But in any case, in the workplace, some people are doing innovative thinking and they're working on creative stuff. And other people are doing work and, and everybody's a balanced job complexes and all of a sudden something comes along. right? Or alternatively, they spend two years investigating that kind of bicycle that I said and it doesn't happen. right? In either event, their remuneration is for effort and sacrifice. And what determines that? Well, how long they work at a balanced job complex and whether or not they in other words, whether they work a little bit more hours or a little bit less hours than average, right? And whether or not they work extra hard or less hard, 
We talked about that in terms of sort of effort ratings. Right? But that isn't whether or not they come up with a good idea. Right. All right. Yeah. And just what? Really Faking. Yeah. yeah. And so who gets to judge that? Well, in, 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 a, in, the, in, in, a, in the old economy, who judges that is the manager, right? And in the new economy, who judges that is who? Your workmates. Again, that's what, you know, that's all there is, because there's no other, so you might as well answer that, right? There's only workers, there's, right? But it might be somebody who has a responsibility. Suppose you want, suppose you fear, right? in the short term before we've all become reconstructed by virtue of being in new institutions. Suppose you fear that a lot of people are going to be thinking about how to dog it, right? So, so you decide that in the workplace we have to probably pay attention to it. So what would you do? One of the tasks would be running around paying attention to whether or not people are dogging it, right? Huh? Okay, so maybe you have that as a task. Now, maybe you don't have it as a task because you think it's a waste of time because the people right around you can be doing it. Right. But, but let's say you don't think, well, you seem to be implying that maybe you can't, maybe you have to look closely. So if you have to look closely, maybe you have to have somebody who takes, who's doing it as part of their job. But what kind of a job complex does that person have? How can they get ahead? Can they run around and make believe people are dogging it and somehow get ahead that way? No. Can they, they just have an incentive to do their job properly. They can't get anything out of, right? You can get something out of dogging it if you get away with it. What's the cost of dogging it? Hmm? Gets smaller. One thing is, is that, yeah, if everybody dogs it, what should really happen? That's exactly right. What should really happen? Instead of dishonestly dogging it, you should... You no, know, if, you're, if you're dogging it because you don't care that the pie gets smaller, you should have voted for the pie being smaller in the first place. Right? So, so that's, that's right. But, but in addition, um, if, you're, if you're dogging it, the cost is, of course, that you're, you're dogging it. You're an asshole. Right? The people don't like you. And what have you gained? You've gained, I mean, what have you gained? Did you get rich from dogging it? No. Did you get, you don't get very much. This is like the ripping off thing. Right? Unless you happen to be able to get into the museum and rip off the fantastic painting and, and really get off on it each night in the basement, it's hard to get, off, to get anything out of stealing because you can't, you can't accumulate because it's totally obvious that you're stealing because there is no other avenue to such great inequality. You can't get, have great inequality by virtue of being a virtuoso something or other because you don't get paid for the virtuoso part. You get paid for the effort and sacrifice part. Right? So here's an example. Suppose, suppose you're, um, suppose you're uh, Bjorn Bohr, you know, you're a great tennis player. You're really a fantastic tennis player. And that's one of the things you do. But how much do you earn? Well, you earn for effort and sacrifice. But you do have this capacity to be this great tennis player. So what might you decide to do in order to live better, if you want to live better? Do? Start a new industry. But if you start an industry, you're going to be working according to the norms and everything of everybody else. You won't get rich that way. You'd either work more hours at your job or you leave to work somewhere harder. Well, yeah, but that just gets you a little ahead. I want to find some some not-so-cricket route, other than stealing, to getting a higher income with my great tennis playing ability. You'd sell lessons. Sell lessons. So I would set up what's called a black market. I would sell lessons on the side. Now, there's only one problem with this little thing. First of all, the minute that I do this, I'm a pariah. Second of all, I've got to get people to pay for them. Right? 
And third of all, once I get the stuff, I got to go into the consumption council and say that I want stuff for all my money, assuming I was able to get money, right? Actually, I'd have to barter, right? So what I'd have to do is barter a lesson for, for the shirt that I have somebody go order, right? And for the other, so I could accumulate stuff by bartering lessons for other things. Is that even that bad? Well, you know, at that low level, maybe it's not, but it isn't in accord with our values, and I don't think it's anything very much about. Why is it not in accord with But let's say, why isn't it not in accord? Because the person's getting rewarded, not just because they're, they're using monopoly. I'm Bjorn Borg. It isn't just that I'm out there on the court doing effort. I'm charging you $500 for a lesson, or the equivalent of it. I'm saying, you know, you like tennis. <laughs> I'm me. You can't get me anyplace else, right? So. So you're willing to give me 18 shirts for a half an hour for this special experience of, right? And that's by virtue of this skill and talent that I've had, that I, you see what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm getting remunerated way above effort and sacrifice. So that's what's out of, out of accord. Let's say, that, suppose this happens. Suppose we have a participatory economy and somebody rich from someplace else that doesn't have a participatory economy decides to set up a capitalist firm in, you know, Hoboken. What happens? Yeah, other than shooting them, what happens? You can't get employees. Well, yeah, how the hell is he going to get any workers? Who the hell is going to work at this place? Who's going to go in and be a wage slave when they can work anyplace else in the society and get a reasonable income and work with dignity and, and control their own lives? Now, suppose the guy says, well, yeah, but suppose I just pour on the money, right? So I'm just going to pour on the money so these people will trade away all that other stuff for, for all this money. Well, there's the minor problem that they can't spend the money in the economy. Right? There's another problem, that the guy can't get any of the inputs for the factory. Because what's going to happen when the guy says to the planning system, you know, I want so much oil, so much this, so much that. So what's going to happen to the, the, you know, in the oil provider or the rubber provider when they see what it's going to? Wage slavery. It's going to say, no, take a hike. Right? There's nothing to worry about. You don't even need police you know, for that purpose. You might need it for deranged maniacs, but you don't need it for that. Right? Because you could have deranged maniacs in a good society, right? I mean, in other words, things go wrong, a screw goes loose, and you have a, a um, mass murderer, and it shouldn't be the, the case that everybody in the whole society is trained to deal with mass murderers. You know, why should you do that? Any more than you should train everybody to do surgery or train everybody to be an airplane pilot. There's no particular reason to do it. There's no harm having some people who are trained in dealing with certain kinds of problems, as long as they have balanced job complexes and they're remunerated for effort and sacrifice and there's no way that they can utilize their skill or talent to aggrandize themselves. Yeah. So how do we deal with nationalism? Deal with what? We have one good society and the rest is all crap. If we have one good society and the rest are capitalists, what's the one that's the good society? Which one is the good one? Yeah, but suppose the good one is, uh, you know, Argentina. What happens? If the, if, the, if the participatory economic society is Argentina, what happens? Yeah. So if we have one good one and all the rest are not good, the good one is going to be the U.S. And not because we get to it first, not because we are moaned to it, but because we crush anybody who gets to it before us. Now that's a slight oversimplification. We, didn't, we weren't able to wipe out Cuba. But it's hard to imagine an economy getting all the way to being on a participatory economy. Because if you had one, just one, 
it's the danger of the showcase, right? Unless you've blown it into being a moonscape, right? The, the quality of what's emerging from it, you know, the exuberance, everything else, which was the danger of Cuba, right, is so great that you just can't permit that. But in any case, nonetheless, you can sort of ask the question, so what was the question, is it hypothetically? Oh, I thought you were going to ask how they interrelate or something. All right, but suppose they aren't, and suppo or suppose the U.S. is participatory economic and some other things aren't, right. and other ones are. Well, so you're trading internationally. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Well, I don't know. You, you'd have some rules. My inclination would be to have a rule that says there's a market, because we're still in, right, and having all changed. So there's a market, and there's a participatory economy. So the market values things at certain rates, and the participatory economy values things at certain rates. And if a participatory economy is going to engage in a transaction, with some other country, if that other country is less developed than us, we should transact at whatever rate benefits them, right? So they get the greater benefit. Even if it's the market rate, we should go over to that instead of this one if they get, you know. In other words, it's, an, it's a moral decision. You still have a military participatory economy? I don't know. That's for the political. Yeah, that's for the political sphere, so I don't worry about it. No, but I mean, you certainly have one if you're Argentina. Right? Or you do something. But if, if you're the U.S., you know, certainly you don't have the kind that we have, right? In which you have all sorts of stuff that have nothing to do with anything military. It just has to do with priming the pump and so on and so forth. Um, you if you have defense, it's a public good, huh? you have money? You don't have money? Anymore? Well, what kind of money do you have? We, we said you had indicative price. We said, and again, you have to read, you know, you can read the description. But you, we said that you, you put in a proposal for what you want to consume. Well, how do you get to consume it? Well, you go to places and you get it, right? And you get it, and, and it keeps track of what you're, what you're spending, because that's your income. So in that sense, you do have money. It might be in a computer, right, which is no different than a credit card. But you're, you're keeping a cumulative track of your activity so that you're within budget. What happens, see, there are all sorts of questions people can perfectly reasonably ask. Like, what happens if your tastes change? If you plan for the year, what happens if your tastes change? If you plan for the year, what happens if you get sick? If you plan, for, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, we dealt with all that. Um, and, and you can think about it and see that there are pretty easy ways to deal with it. You don't know there's going to be sickness. You know, I don't know I'm going to be sick in advance, but what do we know about the whole society? We know very closely what the, relative, what the thing is. So you have to build into the plan, right? Not by virtue of each person saying, I'm going to be sick, you know, this year I've decided to be sick. But you know what the overall averages are going to be, so you build in slack to deal with it, right? Same is true for any system. Well, in, in this system, as compared to many other systems, you can say to yourself, let's have let's have another thing, let's have another 5% or something for emergencies or something like that, right? You can do that. Um, but, you know, you might be short. It's, there's, no, it's, there's no guard against being, making a mistake. You know, you can still make a mistake in this economy, um, whether you're a consumer or a producer or a consumer council or a producer council or whatever the hell you are, right? But it's an honest mistake. Um, all right, well, in any case, um, uh, I guess beyond this, unless people have some more questions. Mm -hmm. hmm? <laughs> well, again, well, there's a book over there that, that's called Moving Forward. And what that book does is it, it does present the vision. So it presents the workplace vision. It presents the consumer vision. It presents the allocation vision. But it also, in addition to presenting the vision, in each case, it says, here's a program. Here's a set of demands 
that are that can be fought for in a way that's consistent with going toward this vision, right? So here's the whole array of demands that seem to make sense to me. Somebody else might do it differently for this part of attaining an economy, right? So our program. But as far as how you do it, what are you doing? You're basically organizing. So you're forming movements like the globalization movement. So imagine we have a, you know, a power econ movement and a feminist movement and an intercommunalist movement and a and a anarchist movement, right? For those four spheres. And we have an ecology movement and we have a globalization movement for international. Okay. So we have all these things. Now instead of having them all be separate, we have them be some kind of under an umbrella. And they're not see a coalition is like least common denominator. When groups form a coalition, what do they do? They say, let's form around this little narrow thing that we can agree on. Suppose we came up with a different structure. We'll take these movements and we'll put them in one bigger movement, right? the, the, the society movement or whatever it's called. And, and instead of being least common denominator, it's the sum of all of them. It's the greatest common sum. Even if there's stuff over here that you don't agree with because you're in here, too bad. This greater thing is the total sum of everything, even with the contradictions. OK, now suppose that's growing. Little like what the Rainbow Coalition could have become. Let's say that's growing. And in addition, we have workplace councils. And we have consumer councils that we form. So consumers form into these councils, and they start agitating around pollution and around all sorts of stuff. They agitate around changing the way people are distributed.